Thank you, Doug. Thank you, team. What a wonderful ministry they provided for us here this morning, right? Thank you so much. It's beautiful. And it is, it is a joy to see you here this morning. And, uh, you know, wasn't really sure if anyone would be here. I'm pretty sure Doug would be here, but this is a huge crowd. <laughs> I was thinking back uh, during some of the COVID days uh, when it would be me and Doug and a couple of uh, musicians and... Uh, then I would come up with the preach, and there would be two or three of the musicians sitting out here and trying to act like the place was just packed, okay? <laughs> but uh, really grateful for all of you here, thankful for you that are uh, watching online, and grateful for uh, the safety the Lord has provided for us, and we don't take that for granted. So welcome today. Let's turn to... The passage we read earlier, Matthew chapter 7. We turn to Matthew chapter 7. As most of you know, we are in a series here on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is about life in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing. He is laying out what could be called the constitution of Christianity, what it means to enter the kingdom, how we enter the kingdom by His grace, how we are to live in the kingdom as citizens of the kingdom and children of the king. And so it's been a blessing to be a part with the other uh, pastors in sharing, and I'm really excited to be able to do this this morning. You know, I was thinking earlier today as I was... Uh, going over the notes and praying for the service, that it's exactly 37 years ago this month that the first series that I brought as pastor here at West Park was from the Sermon on the Mount. I came right before Christmas time and so uh, some Christmas messages, but then a, a big decision what? What to teach about as you start this new ministry with people you really don't know in a new community where you don't know actually anyone in the community. And so my mind was uh, called back then to the Sermon on the Mount because that is really, is it not, the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to be constantly taught this by our Lord through His Word. But I re remember it was about this time <clears throat> in January, back in 1987, where I was uh, three, four messages into the Sermon on the Mount, and we were gathering at that time in the little round building, the World's Fair building back here. And uh, after one of my messages, uh, one of the founders of the church came up to speak to me. Actually, the church started in his uh, living room. Wonderful man of God by the name of Roy Valentine. Few of you may remember him. What a passionate servant of the Lord he was. And a great encouragement to me uh, in the early years and then uh, to be with him when he passed on to glory. But he was also an encourager in another way, especially as I started uh, preaching here. He came up to me that morning and he said in his southern way, 
Brother Sam, we love you. We really love you, Brother Sam. But you talk too fast. <laughs> you got to slow down. We're not used to hearing people talk that fast. Because I come from up in northern Ohio, and I would stand at the pulpit, and I would take your Bible and turn now to Matthew chapter 5 as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, something like that. And he helped me to know you talk too fast. <laughs> So I've learned to slow down over the years. Problem with that, it makes for longer sermons, all right? <laughs> you can't have it both ways, all right? I also recall about that same time, another comment, one of the deacons came up to me as we were several messages into the series, Sermon on the Mount, and he said to me, he said, Pastor Sam, are you preaching or teaching? And I kind of looked at me and he said, it, it kind of sounds like both. And I said, good, good. That's the way, that's great. I want it to sound like that. Uh, there was uh, some understanding of what teaching sounded like, I guess, and what preaching sounded like. I think it had something to do with volume, okay? You're a little louder when you're preaching. But as I actually think about that teaching and preaching, you know, they are closely connected, but they are different. They're two different words to describe teaching and to describe preaching. Uh, the general word for teaching in the New Testament is the word didaskaleo, didaskaleo. We get our word didactic or that which has to do with teaching. So that's, that's a common word for teaching. The word for preaching is a different word. It's the word keruso. And keruso means a, a proclamation. It's the idea of someone who has a message, a message from a leader, a government official, maybe a king, and he comes to a community and he proclaims that message. The word is keruso. Now they are common in this. Preaching and teaching both share information. From the Word of God. And if it's not from the Word of God, it's not Christian preaching or teaching. We just need to understand that, right? Amen. It's just talk. <laughs> Both teaching and preaching share information. Both teaching and preaching also seek transformation. The, the goal of the teaching and preaching the Word of God is not just the impartation of information. It's actually to result in transformation of people's lives because of the power of God on His Word. But there is a difference, and here's the difference in my thinking, between preaching and teaching. Preaching always includes an additional element and that is exhortation. There's an exhortation. There's a challenge to respond. There is a call to a decision. But now having heard this information from the Lord and His Word, there is a call to respond. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching and preaching. He is teaching as no one ever taught before. 
But you see here, especially in these remaining verses of Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus comes to the end of this message, he really is preaching. Jesus was called a teacher, but he was also called a preacher. He was a preacher and a teacher. And here, as he comes to the conclusion of this message, he begins to call people to a decision. He closes this sermon wanting the thousands of people on that hillside to make a decision to respond. He calls listeners to choose. That's what Jesus does. These last verses, he calls people to make a choice. Today, I want you to see... As Jesus begins to call us to make that choice, he's very clear about the choice. And it's the theme I'd like to use for the message this morning. It's this, two and only two. When it comes to response, there's two and only two. Listen to Jesus again, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now I want us to consider Jesus' challenge here. He makes a challenge and the challenge is two and only two. Notice there are two gates. There are two roads, there are two destinations, and there are two groups of people. After everything Jesus has said, and he calls for a response, he says to the crowd that day, and he has been saying it to the masses of the untold billions since then by his Spirit through the Word, When it comes to his teaching, who he is, his call. When it comes to him as King Jesus, there are only two gates, two roads, two destinations, two groups. And Jesus calls today to us, choose. Make your choice. So let's look at these choices today. First of all, Jesus said in this call to response, there are two gates. There's the narrow gate and the wide gate. Do you see that? The narrow gate and the wide gate. The narrow gate represents the gate of salvation. 
The wide gate represents any other way of salvation. Any man-made device about salvation. The title over that wide gate could be the gate of religion. It could be the gate of good works. It could be the gate of my good life. That's the wide gate. But Jesus says there's only one gate that leads to eternal life. One gate. And he says it is the narrow gate. The narrow gate. Now friends, sometimes Christians are condemned and accused of being narrow-minded. Yeah. You ever heard that? That Christians are narrow-minded. And you know, let's just get honest. We are. <laughs> we are narrow-minded. Not about issues regarding which the Bible does not speak. And we have to be very clear about that. I've heard some Christians over the years be very narrow in sharing their opinions, their beliefs, but the Bible doesn't say that. <laughs> and so when we are narrow-minded, it doesn't have to, think, have to do with things to which the Bible doesn't speak. <laughs> it's like that pastor who, over a century or more ago, he pastored in central Indiana, as a matter of fact, near my hometown, and he pastored in central Ohio. And he had a sermon where he actually preached and said that flight had been ordained only for angels. And the idea of men flying is blasphemous to their created responsibilities. That's what the pastor preached. His name was Pastor Wright, and he had two sons named Orville and Wilbur. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Loved their dad, but didn't quite see it that way. But he was adamant about this, and sure, got a lot of amens, as preachers can even saying the most ridiculous thing. But when it comes, listen, listen, church. When it comes to the matters of faith, and when it comes to the matters of salvations, salvation, Christians are to be narrow-minded. Just as narrow as Jesus. Friends, we must understand when it comes to salvation, when it comes to eternal life, Jesus was very narrow-minded. Think about some of the things Jesus said. Jesus said these things. Not some wide-eyed, fanatical preacher. Jesus said things like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but by me. That's narrow. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet he shall live. That's narrow. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. He that believes in me will never hunger. As a matter of fact, as we talk about a narrow gate, Jesus said, I am the gate. Jesus said, I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved. My friends, you can't get much more narrow than that. So we have to banish from our minds the foolish idea that the Lord Jesus was not narrow when it comes to the call of the way of salvation in Him alone. Now why does Jesus refer to His wonderful salvation as a narrow gate. I mean, think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. That seems so wide, so broad. It is. It is. But how is it narrow? How could Jesus call it narrow? Here's why. First of all, this narrow gate demands that everyone enters alone. You do not enter this gate on your mother's faith or your father's faith. Family groups don't enter this gate. Everyone must enter this gate alone. Billions have come. But everyone must come individually. It's a narrow gate because it demands we come alone. Also, it demands we enter without the baggage of sin. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from a century and a half ago, said this. Listen carefully. He said, quote, you and your sins must be separated or you and your God will never come together. You and your sins must be separated. Or you and your God will never come together. What is he talking about? There must be repentance. There must be a turning from sin. A determination by the grace of God. And responding to the work of his grace in your heart. To turn from your sins. And to turn to Christ alone. Repentance is more than just a desire to be delivered from hell. Repentance is a desire to be delivered from yourself. To be different. To be changed. To be turned around and you know you can't do it. But by God's grace you turn to Christ trusting Him to separate you from your sin. 
And thank God for a Savior who can do that. He says, I'll cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. I'll bury them in the depths of the sea. I'll remember them what? No more. Why? Because something has actually happened to our sins. Our sins have been nailed to Christ. And if you are a believer in Jesus, that's the only place you want your sins to be. Nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ your Lord. And there, you and your sins are separated. And you can enter into that gate of salvation. It's narrow. It demands we enter alone. It demands that we enter without the baggage of sin. But thirdly, it's a narrow gate because it demands action. It's interesting here. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. And as Matthew translated that statement of Jesus, he used in the Greek language a verb form. It's called the aorist tense. It's an aorist tense and it's an imperative. And it means enter. Make a definite decision. Enter this gate. Don't just ponder the gate. Don't admire the gate. Don't just look at the gate. Don't just sing about the gate. Enter the gate. Say, I will. I will. Enter. It's a narrow gate. There's two gates. Notice now there's two roads. Notice that. There's a broad road, Jesus says. And there's a narrow road. A broad road. And a narrow, hard road. The broad road. Why is it called a broad road? Why is it broad? It means it's easy. It makes no demands. It's a, it's a free way. Be free and go your own way. And your free way will lead you to eternal life. It's easy. It's attractive. Oh, there's nothing on this way. No road signs about the blood of Jesus. There's no road signs interrupt you about calling you to make a U-turn in holiness. There's no signs that say you need to detour from this attitude which is wrong. There's, there's nothing on the, this road that's ever going to make you suffer. Never going to call you to make any sacrifice. I mean, it's just like the greatest Caribbean cruise smorgasbord all day long. Take your time, see the sights. It's attractive. It's easy. It's popular. You won't, you won't travel this road alone. It's very popular. Most people are on it. It's permissive. Hey, 
Who am I to judge you? Your road, my road. Let's just, we'll get along. All agree. You've got your truth. I've got my truth. He's got his truth. Everywhere truth, truth. <laughs> they all lead to that wonderful eternal life. And the people on this road, listen. For the most part, the people on this road are nice people, pleasant people, thoughtful people, but deceived people. Solomon said this, there is a way, there is a road that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but he's deceived about the outcome of that way. There's a broad road. Then Jesus said there's a narrow road. There's two, two roads. There's a narrow road. This, this is God's way. This is the, the road to true salvation, Jesus says. It's a narrow way because it represents a, a life that is totally committed to Jesus Christ. It's, it is, is a following after Christ who walks this road. It's a, it's a narrow road because you don't just fall into it. You don't stumble into it. it it's, it's the road that you seek because Jesus is on that road. It's the road that Jeremiah talked about when he spoke for the Lord. What did the Lord say about finding him and taking the right road? Here's what the Lord said. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, says the Lord, and I will be found by you. My friend, God is not playing hide and seek. But he is serious. And when people seriously want to know him, seriously want him to reveal himself to them, when they seek him with all their heart, his unconditional promises, you will find me. Seek the Lord. It's the narrow road, Jesus says. God's way of salvation, my friend, listen, this narrow road, it's, it's simple. It's a, it's a simple road, but it's not easy. Uh, this road that the Lord is on leads to salvation. It, it's a free. It's not, you don't have to pay a toll. Praise God, the toll's been paid by Jesus. It's a free road, but listen to me, it's not cheap. God's grace is not cheap grace. God's grace is not Say yes to Jesus. Nod your head 
then live however you want to live. Don't worry about it. You've got your ticket to get out of hell card. That's not this road Jesus is talking about. It is simple, but it's not easy. It's not cheap. It costs us nothing. But my friend, listen, it costs you everything. What did Jesus say? If anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. My friend, in Jesus' day, when he said take up a cross, he wasn't talking about get a piece of jewelry to wear around your neck. He was talking about an instrument of death. Dying to self. And following him. Into resurrected life. There's two gates. There's two roads. And Jesus says listen. There's two destinations. There's two destinations. Many years ago, shortly after Susan and I were married, I was in seminary in South Carolina. One night after she'd worked all day, I had worked the night before. I'd been in classes all day. <clears throat> we got a phone call that her father was seriously ill. And so we had to pack up and start up to Indiana. And I, I drove as far as I could until it was just dangerous. As I was driving up through Kentucky, I will tell you, driving through Kentucky at any time is dangerous at some level. <laughs> but I was falling asleep. And so I said, honey, I need, I've got to have a little nap. <clears throat> I, and she said, well, how, what do I do? I said, well, we're on 75 you just take it straight north to Cincinnati. And when we get to Cincinnati, wake me up. She said, okay. She took the wheel. And after a couple of hours, I woke up and I saw a sign. It said, welcome to Louisville. <laughs> she had stayed on the road, but I'd forgotten to tell her something. Just north of Lexington, some of you know the road forks, right? Yep. And just... One turn of the wheel here leads to, Lexington, leads to Cincinnati and on. One little turn here takes you to Louisville. I've thought about that. Jesus says your road determines your destination. You see, if you're on Interstate 64, you're not going to end up the same place as Interstate 75. You can drive right out here west of town, just a few miles from where we are. One little turn of the wheel and keep going, you'll be in Tampa, Florida. One little turn of the wheel the other way, you'll go all the way through Little Rock, Arkansas, and then on to oblivion out there. <laughs> the wilderness. Out there where Jesus was tempted, I think.
See, there's two destinations. Listen to this. Jesus says there's two destinations. There's life or destruction. That's the two destinations. There's life or destruction. There's eternal life. Or there's eternal destruction. We could take other passages from the Bible and say it's either heaven or hell. There's only two destinations. There's no place in between. There's no purgatory to be purged from your sins and delivered out after millennia. No, there's only two, life or destruction. The destination of the broad road. The road of choosing our own way. The road of self-fulfillment. The, the road of unconcern about the things of God. Unconcern about salvation. There's a destination to that road. And it is destruction, Jesus said. This is Jesus. Am I right? This is what Jesus is saying. Amen. There is a broad road. And it leads to destruction. And to be deceived about which road you're on is beyond imagination. And it's terrible outcome to be deceived. All of you know how we've been blasted by Arctic air, snow, and ice here in Knoxville area for the last several days. But around the country, it's been even worse. One of the terrible stories that we've heard several times in these last few days is people were out in the storm. And because of the blinding snow, they got on the wrong road. They thought they were on the road that was leading them to their destination. But they got on the wrong road. And suddenly, without warning, the, the road ended in front of them. And into the water they went. Or over the cliff they went. And many, in these last few days lost their lives on a road that they thought was leading them to the destination they desired, but they were mistaken, and it was deadly. My friend, how much more infinitely terrible for those who enter the wide gate, who travel the broad road, and at the moment of death, To their utter horror. Find out. That road did not lead to life. But to destruction. Praise God. There is another destination. Because of Jesus. There is another destination. 
not destruction. There's the destination of the narrow road, and that is the destination of eternal life, everlasting life, the glory of heaven, freedom from sin, peace at last, rightly related with God and with your fellow man and with an eternity in the paradise of the Lord to never desire to sin again. Sin will be no more. Tears gone forever. Everlasting bliss in the presence of God, serving Him in ways we can't imagine throughout the cycling ages of eternity. What a destination! Bought and paid for by Jesus. Free for all who will come to him. Because he is the gate. He is the way. What a savior we have. To be a Christian, yes, it means to walk the narrow road. But my friend, I want you to listen to the chorus of an old song. I used to listen to a dear brother, mentally handicapped, sing this song. It broke me up every time I heard it. With his struggling voice, this medically, mentally challenged young man, Stephen, would sing this song, and he'd come to the chorus. It will be worth it all. When we see Jesus, life's trials will seem so small. When we see Christ, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. It's what Paul said. There's two gates. There's two roads. There's two destinations. And my friend, finally, notice there are two groups. Two groups of people. Two groups entering the two gates, traveling the two roads, reaching the two destinations. We find two groups of people. How does Jesus describe these two groups? Notice how he describes them. He describes one as the many. The many. The many. Of course, in Jesus' context here, it means the most. Staggering to consider the implication of Jesus' statement. I just read this week that every single day, 167,000 people die every day and enter eternity. In this year of 2024, it's estimated 61 million people will leave this planet and enter into eternity. 
Think about that, 61 million. That is the population of the state of Tennessee eight times over. This year will pass into eternity. How many billions have passed since Jesus shared this message? Many. Most, he says. Enter in eternity. And destruction beyond. And Jesus says the other group is few. It is the road that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find this road. Now be careful here. Not few because it's only God's desire to save just a few. My Bible tells me this. The Apostle Peter said... The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It's not few because it's only God's heart for a few people to turn. The heart of God is the heart of Jesus. Like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered you, he said, but you would not come. It's not few because the gate is narrow. There's only one gate and people must come one at a time. But my friend, I want you to know it is a, date, it is a gate open, the Bible says, to whosoever will let him come and receive the water of life. Jesus said God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. The door is narrow. You must come one at a time. But the invitation is worldwide. But it's only through Jesus. What did Jesus say? Come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Come to me and you'll receive the water of life freely. Come to me and receive the bread of life. Come to me. And though your sins be like scarlet, they will be what? White as snow. We've had a covering of gospel reminder for days here. Why is it few? Why does Jesus say it's few? Listen carefully. It's few because so many are interested in salvation, but not one that has anything to do with surrender. They think of eternal life like a trip to McDonald's. Have it your way. The people in Jesus' day wanted a Messiah of their own making. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why? He's not the kind of Messiah we want. He, he, we, 
We want a Messiah, but we don't want a master. It's like so many people today, listen carefully. I'll receive Jesus as my Savior, but I'm not ready to make him my Lord. I'll receive Jesus as my Savior, but I'm not ready to make him my Lord. That is impossible. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. You don't have the authority to subdivide Jesus. He is Lord and Savior. We cannot pick and choose. Christ is Lord. That's the confession of our faith. And it's not just words. It's the confession of our faith that comes from the transformation of our heart. He is Lord. That's why there are few. Because it means to surrender totally, completely to Jesus as Lord and Savior. This week, I close with this. I was reading about two poets. And their two poems. They started life very similarly. One poet, his name was Henley. Henley, Ernest Henley, was a man who lived in the mid-1800s, lived up until the early 1900s. He's from England. He was a poet, a critic, an editor. When he was about 12 years of age, he developed tuberculosis. It terribly impacted the bone of one of his legs. It had to be amputated. He suffered with tuberculosis over a number of years. And while he suffered, yet he tried to show a brave front, overcoming the challenges, the pain. And he would laugh and actually be like the, the life of the party. But also, beneath it all, he had a hatred for God. A hatred born out of what he felt like God had done to him. And so he was drawn to agnostic, atheistic teachings of Nietzsche. And Marks became an avowed communist and God-hater. When he was 26 and he was in the hospital, he wrote a poem and called the poem Invictus. Invictus. Here's what he wrote. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but not bowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, I look 
at the horror of the coming shade. And yet, in the menace of those years, will find me and find me still unafraid. It matters not, it matters not how straight the gate. Listen to that. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Another poet was greatly influenced by this man who wrote Invictus. Her name was Dorothy Day. She became very involved in Marxist ideology, living in the 1920s, what would be called a bohemian lifestyle, free love, free of all constraints. She became pregnant. Her partner forced her to have an abortion. Maybe she, we should listen to this now, this Right to Life Sunday. Partner forced her to have an abortion. And then he deserted her. She contemplated suicide. Not knowing what to do, she just gave herself deeper to this lifestyle of evil. Met with another man, moved in with another man, lived with this man, became expecting again. But she was determined to keep her baby. And because of that, the man left her. But God put in her path people of faith who talked to her about the Lord. His grace and His forgiveness. She committed her life to follow Jesus. She was baptized and even had her child baptized. By God's grace, she went on to work in social causes throughout her life. But she read... And thought again about that poem, Invictus. And she decided she'd give a different version to it. And she wrote a poem called, My Captain. And here's what she wrote. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole. I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule which men call chance. My head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, 
that life with him and his the aid. That, spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Which is your anthem, my friend? Two and only two. There's only two gates, two roads, two destinations, two groups of people. And those two groups of people made up of individuals who say, Either I am the master of my faith, I am the captain of my soul, or those who say, Christ is the master of my life. Christ is the master of my soul. Which group are you in, my friend? Be very sure. Let's bow our heads. Dear friends, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. My prayer, and it has been my prayer, is that this morning people would be delivered from the deception. Jesus is my Savior. But I've not yet made him my Lord. My friend. Jesus is who he is. Lord and Savior. You don't take him one half at a time. You will not be perfect as you walk behind him. You will fall. You will falter. You will go astray. Yes. But to follow the master on the narrow road, hard as it is at times, through that narrow gate, is to follow him to eternal life. Dear friend, today, would you say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, save me. You and only you be the master of my fate. You, only you, be captain of my soul. I surrender all. Dear friend, in regard to your faith or in regard to any struggle you may be having, there is no greater word of victory than this. I surrender to Jesus. Have your way, Lord. May victory come this morning as people surrender to Jesus. In his name, amen.